Hello, Sonoma. Welcome back. My guest today is Rebecca Hermosillo. She is a local Sonoman who has been representing the community, whether that be through local nonprofits or in the congressman's office. Today, we talk to her about her own career path in Sonoma and beyond. Hello, Sonoma. Welcome, Rebecca. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So for the past 10 years, you've worked in the office of Sonoma Valley's Congressman Mike Thompson. You're now the senior district representative, meaning you often represent the congressman throughout the district. I know congressional calendars are notoriously packed. What does your day typically look like? Well, there's no typical day per se. Generally, we start in the office at nine, but sometimes that means you've already had like a breakfast meeting with the chamber. We're typically in the office nine to five, Monday through Friday, but that doesn't include weekend events, after hour events. So you still are in the office the next morning. (laughs) Going to events even today, you've got stuff you've got to go to. I do, I do. On this Sunday morning. Well, your first job was as a constituent services representative, taking phone calls from constituents to resolve, not your first job overall, your first job in this office, to resolve issues concerning the federal government. And then eventually you moved to public speaking. You've held a lot of roles. What do you remember about those conversations uh, with the constituents? You know, I what I remember most is that people often call in the time of need, and it looks different for, for everybody. And so it's really important to be compassionate that it takes a lot for them to call their member of Congress. And so having a good listening uh, <laughs> shoulder and patience sometimes, and then figuring out how to navigate. If it's not a federal issue, then sending them to the resource that can help them. Yeah, a lot of directing. I yeah. know that some of those issues were immigration related, IRS related, passport predicaments, other federal related, you know, health questions, talking to veterans experiencing homelessness, all kinds of issues. I mean, there's just yeah. so many things that that people call in for. Yeah. I mean, we've had phone calls where people are like, the garbage company has not picked up my trash. I'm, I'm so sorry. Here's a number to call. <laughs> yeah, you got to do it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's very broad in resources that we direct people to. I believe you originally got involved when you volunteered for Congressman Thompson's Connecting Latino Voices, an effort to help get people out to vote. Why were you drawn to that opportunity? It, it came about actually because of Valerie Brown and then my former uh, supervisor, Cheryl Deem. The congressman really wanted to find a way to get connected in the Valley to Latinos. And so he reached out to Valerie Brown, who's a good friend of his, and she said, we have to talk to Rebecca. And so I am well connected in the Valley, being uh, born and raised here. And so his district director at the time, Cheryl Deem, called me. We met at Maya over a mojito, <laughs> and the rest is history. I helped him for a few years on those events, which was really rewarding. That must have been amazing to be a bridge builder. Yeah. Wow. Well, before working in the congressman's office, you said you thought the job would be more paperwork than people. After 10 years here, how do you feel about it now? It's all people. <laughs> there is paperwork involved. Uh, it's part of doing your job, and uh, we can navigate that and get it done quickly. But Every day we get to help people, and it's just a blessing. I say I get paid to help people, and it's amazing to have wins. You know, this gentleman came to us for an immigration petition that was stuck, and we got helped get it unstuck and moved along, and he got to see his mom after 18 years. Can you imagine not seeing 
family or your parents for 18 years. So it's awesome. That is fantastic. Mm -hmm. You talked about being well-connected. I'm sure that now you know even more people throughout the district of an even wider sphere. I do. Often people are like, do you remember you helped me with a passport seven years ago? And I'm like, tell me the name. And sometimes (laughs) I do. (laughs) Sometimes I do remember, and it's really rewarding. What do you tell people who are just joining this federal office to expect now that you've been here for a little while now? You know, really, I call it the nonprofit of the people. So they they have to be in it for the goodwill and to be of service to their community that they want to help in because it'll look different every single day. And the salaries are not stellar. So you have to really be in it for the right reasons. So the nonprofit of the people. That's a good that's a good thing to say. Well, one of your friends says you always take time to try to understand all sides of a particular issue with a decade of learning new experiences and new perspectives from all over. What has this particular role taught you about our community? That everyone has diverse interests and um, perspectives and interests. And so you try to find middle ground um, to move things forward. And so um, it's really important that you understand the issues that are affecting the Valley and all the sides that it impacts. So I try to do my homework. (laughs) How do you do that? I'm talking to stakeholders, talking to um, stakeholders, who do you talk to? And then from the other side, what's your network? And just reaching out. And it may not be Valley people. It may be people, you know, up north, but just really doing the legwork to having a robust sense of the issue. And it's kind of what we do for the congressman. You know, when he's going to make a decision or go to an event, like we know all about the entity, what Mm -hmm. they're doing, the pros, the cons. And so it's really doing advance work. Yeah, getting prepared beforehand. Yeah. Well, it sometimes feels like when we think about federal politics, national politics, which the congressman is a part of, we're kind of jumping from emergency to emergency, and there's not as much focus on local representatives and local areas. Is there anything you wish that people from our community knew about their local congressional office? Uh, You know, um, it really draws me back to the interns we have we do an exit interview after they finish their term. And we ask them, what did you think about government before coming in? And what do you think about after? And often the answer is, we had no idea how much work is being done <laughs> and how much like you can be helpful to people. Yeah. And they're like, we didn't know you could call about a passport. We didn't know that if you travel abroad, you should enroll in the STEP program so that Department of State has a way to find you if something should happen. We had no idea that you can help move along passports in emergency circumstances. And if they're not backed up, normal circumstances. Yeah. And so it's really about knowing that there is a resource, not just at the federal level, but at the state level too, All of our legislators are here to help, and um, they have different roles and different staff that helps kind of move things along. And there's always someone on the other line when you call. Always. That's amazing. Well, leading up to your role in the congressman's office, you were the executive director of what was then the Sonoma Valley Teen Center, where you aimed to give them a safe space, a sense of purpose, and family spirit. Why those three things? Oh, 
It was when I joined the board of the teen center, the teen center was going through some challenges, both, you know, building their new building, redirecting their resources, building a good reputation in the community. And I felt that for the teen center to be an inclusive place for all kids, there needed to be boundaries, respect, trust, kind of built into the structure of what we did every day. Um, so that everybody would feel welcome. And so I think we did that with those three pillars. And some of those kids are some of my great friends now. That's awesome. That must be so cool to have that evolved relationship. Um, Well, some of the specific programs you helped create were the Outdoors to Excellence programs, taking teens hiking, biking, and on overnight coast trip, Skills for Life, helping them do stuff like earn a California food handler's card, and the Love and Oven, doing pop-up dinners and catering for local fundraisers. How do you feel those programs impacted the kids you worked with? Oh, gosh. You know, um, Outdoors to Excellence, I, I see that when I would get kids outdoors, mind you, I had a lot to overcome. I am not the most physically fit person in America. Bike riding is not my cup of tea, but I would do it because I knew it was important for them. Mm -hmm. And when I would get kids outside, either hiking, biking, you saw the best in them. There was one young gentleman that he always kind of listened to the guidance I gave him. And in one particular instance, I was like, okay, um, Jose Jorge, it's time to sit down. We're gonna have our lunch and then we'll continue the hike. And he did not. And that's the only time that he didn't really like listen. And I was like, you're not going to eat. And so I kept kind of prodding him. And he was wandering around. He was looking for a walking stick for me. Because we were on uneven uh, terrain. And you just see, that's just like one glimpse of what you saw. You know, then you had kids in the overnight camp, you know, making sure that the team was all together when we'd go exploring at night. So it just... You saw the best when you get them outdoors. Yeah, and it sounds like you were trying to see them with compassion mm-hmm. once you yeah. understood that he was looking for something yeah. for you. Yeah. Wow. And what about the other program? I mean, the Love and Oven sounds like a really, I like the name, first of all. Um, <laughs> but getting kids name. like cooking and learning to connect to food. Yeah, it started um, much more um, simpler than that. It was um, Anea Kamehele was who was with State Farm. She wanted to help also with the kitchen. We had a mm-hmm. surplus of, of food. And what do we do other than cooking our meals? Like, how can it be a resource for kids? And so it started with four young gals that were like, let's start a business. What does that look like? What do you need to do? They created their logo, their name. Um, they adjusted their price points. And and Love and Oven is still in existence. It taught us all structure, how to start a business, what it looks like, commitment. There was many a nights that we would be 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock baking because yeah. we had a big event the next day. And it was all about teamwork and it, perseverance, honestly. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, It's like that experiential opportunity to actually be in the kitchen is a big difference. Than yeah. Learning about it on a whiteboard. Yeah. And one of those gals that helped start Love and Oven now has her own business that is very successful in Santa Rosa. No way. Yeah. So it did exactly what it was yeah. trying to yeah. do. Yeah. Uh, well, kind of along those lines, in 2011, Teen Services was awarded the second $100,000 grant from Impact 100 for that life program. It enabled you to create classes like the food handling certifications, employee 101, resume and interviewing workshops. 
Having experienced the difference that big philanthropic donations like that can make firsthand, what do you hope that people understand about that part or that way of giving back? Yeah, it really is what saved the teen center and changed the trajectory of how we serve kids and how we can be a successful nonprofit in the community. The teen center has now merged with Boys and Girls Club, but I think that if that wouldn't have happened, the Impact 100 grant wouldn't have happened, the merger eventually would not have happened. It really put us on the right foot to be able to expand the mission and help as many kids as possible. Yeah, sometimes when people are thinking about how to give back, especially to nonprofits, they're like, I got to volunteer. But sometimes (laughs) giving a lot of money can be really helpful. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. And Impact 100, it's, you know, 100, it started with 100 women giving 1,000, and it has grown exponentially. And so, you know, not everybody has 100,000 extra (laughs) in their bank, but they have 500 a month, 100 a month, you know, what Whatever it looks like for them, it's important to find the nonprofit that they support their mission and donate. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, on the other side of the spectrum, every night, I believe you cooked dinner for teens. Uh, you would help them cook and clean and you talk around the table. Why was this dinner ritual important to you? It was important because that's what happened in my house. No matter what, (laughs) six o'clock, everybody was gathered around the dinner table. And um, that's where you just build relationship and support and conversation. And that's, we we have a strong family. So it's the sense of unity that I wanted to make sure the kids at the teen center had. So they knew that we were all in this together. Because oftentimes I had kids there that maybe gang affiliated and they were from opposing teams and I wanted them to know that this was a safe place for everybody and we're in it together. Yeah, there's something about being around the dinner table that helps make that possible. Yeah, yeah. I even got these young men to do a barbecue like challenge at, oh gosh, what's it called? Morton's? Yeah, Morton's. And it was opposing gangs and they had a grill off to see who... who <laughs> wow could grill, uh, grill the best. And then at the end of the day, two opposing gang members were in the same car getting dropped off at home safely. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a cool way to bridge communities and to, I don't know, to build community in a yeah. new way through yeah. the, through it was the really food. Good. What kind of conversations did you have around the dinner table? Anything and everything. <laughs> it really was driven by the kids. Sometimes it was homework help. Sometimes it would it was advice. Sometimes it was, what are we going to make tomorrow? Sometimes it was, what did we just eat? It was anything and everything um, that the kids wanted to talk about. And it was always honest conversations with them um, because I wanted them to have an adult in their life that would always tell them the truth. Yeah, that's a big Mm -hmm. deal. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because in popular culture, teens and teenagers are often labeled as difficult, confusing, rebellious. But many of the kids in the program talked about how you made them feel understood. How did you bridge that gap? I know that being a teen is hard. I know that being a teen in this day and age is exponentially harder. I know that they need someone that they can trust Mm -hmm. available at all times. And I was that person for them. And so it it was important for them to build trust. And 
and know that I would be there no matter what they said. And so that looked different for some people. You know, some it was encouraging someone to go to college, um, which she did and came back and she said, what do I do now? And I said, you should join a board or a commission. And she did. That's cool. Um, She interviewed one of the places I suggested because I said, what's important to you? And she's like, healthcare, because she had juvenile diabetes. And I said, okay call the health center or the hospital, see if you could join their board. And she did. And she asked if she could sit in on one of their meetings. And I said, that's brilliant. And so I look at kids, um, not as challenging, but like they can be so broad in looking for solutions to problems that often if I had a problem at the teen center around dinner, I'm like, hey, guys, I'm stuck with this problem. Like, what do you guys think? How would you solve it? And they would come up with amazing ideas. Yeah. Just so their voices were heard. Giving them an opportunity to be creative yeah. or, and to be listened to. Yeah. Wow. Well, in t- 2007, there was a really tough situation. A 17-year-old young man was shot and killed in Sonoma. And you made sure these teens had access to grief counseling and other resources. What was it like guiding that community through uh, that tough time? It was emotionally hard. I knew it was hard for the community to grapple this. I knew that this could lead to more violence. I knew that these were all young men and women that are our friends and neighbors Mm -hmm. that will be here. And how do we help them overcome this trauma? And so... I, um, at the time, we had Wilmar in town, and I said, you know, I think we should do grief counseling. The teen center wasn't fully to where, the the teen center wasn't at the place where it's at now, where anybody can go. It was, we were still building our trust with the kids. And so we went to the Boys and Girls Club and asked if we could use their clubhouse. And I didn't know what the outcome would be. The young men and women, I just said, we're going to set up a grief counseling. Come, this is the time, this is the day. And I remember waiting outside of the little horseshoe, and it was time for them to start the meeting, and that no one was there. And I was like, oh, God, did I make a mistake? And so I called one of the kids. I'm like, hey, are you guys coming? And they're like, yeah, we're just crossing the street. And they they crossed from McDonald's and were walking on the bike path, and they looked like a little swarm of bees. There were so many. I think it was about 65 that showed up. And so I that's a huge testament for them to wanting to navigate this grief and 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 understand it and then move on and a lot of the kids have done a great job in moving through that challenge yeah that's amazing that you were able to offer that platform for them yeah Um, especially when where else would that outlet be yeah we're going to have to take a quick break but we'll be right back on hello sonoma Hello, Sonoma. Welcome back. We're talking with Rebecca Hermosillo. So the Teen Center's original name was El Nido, the nest in English. Uh, An article in the IT says that the center recognized the need for a safe haven for Latino youth, a place where boundaries and tough love were coupled with respect and acceptance to help teens make good choices. Though it isn't called El Nido anymore, how do you feel about the students who have since flown away from the nest? I think that everyone has left a legacy. Um, and you leave those legacies for others to build on. And the che- the Teen Center has gone through a, a few name changes. <laughs> but I think ultimately its mission is to help kids. And that's still the same. 
Yeah, well, pretty exciting to be able to see them, as you mentioned, start their own businesses and and expand in opportunities. So, before working at the Teen Center, you had you had a mentor in a way, uh, Belinda Guadarrama, the CEO of the Petaluma-based hardware and software company, where you worked as her executive assistant. On your website, you say that she opened your eyes to the world of philanthropy, community service, and local politics. How did she do that? She um, would sponsor baseball for a group of farm workers in the Central Valley every year, and she'd go out oh. there and play with them. She would attend a lot of local elected officials' events, and that's where it first started planting that seed that Latinos can have a voice in politics. And she does it with such great... So she owned GC Micro, um, was in amazing meetings with very powerful Fortune 500 company owners, and she could hold her own. Mm -hmm. And she's, you know, five foot nothing. (laughs) And she she really commanded her presence in her tone and her way of being to navigate what she wanted. And so that was my first glimpse of a powerful woman really holding her own that's Latina locally. Yeah, that's pretty amazing to have a, what's the right word? Just a role model. Yeah. You also said that she taught you how to be a working professional and raise two young boys, how to manage your time. Yeah, yeah. You know, she always was, um, her family was important, a husband, mom, uh, you know, close friends, but she always balanced family and work. And so that was a new concept to me because it was, I had grown up that it was really like you work to provide for your family. And and there was not really a collaboration there. Hmm. Um, and so she really showed me how to do both. Yeah. Well, you added a couple of things to your agenda and, and balance a little bit later, but I think you took some of those lessons with you because while you were working in the congressman's office, you decided to earn your bachelor's degree in public administration. So you were doing <laughs> five, three things at once. Yeah. What was that like and why was it important for you to get that done? Yeah. I, you know, I was not the most stellar student. And so high school was really a challenge. And um, eventually I got my GED and I was the first person that the congressman hired, I believe, with um, a GED. And I wanted that notch on my belt, mostly from my then boss, Cheryl, uh, now friend and mentor. She said, you know, what do you want to do next? And it really had me thinking because I didn't, I hadn't thought about it. And I said, you know, I'd really like that degree. It was a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. It was a lot of work. You said working ridiculous hours, right? Ridiculous hours, you know, because we're at community events in the morning and the evenings. Often the congressman would text on his way to D.C. at 4.30, you know, uh, to the airport. And I'd respond, and he's like, what are you doing up? And I'd take a screenshot of my laptop (laughs) doing homework. (laughs) So I would do homework before work, after work. And it was just important not for me only not just for me, but for my kids to say to see that you should always be persevering. Yeah. And so if you didn't do things right early on, there's still ways to change the trajectory. I was just listening to an interview with a, one of the most uh, decorated Formula One drivers. His name is Lewis Hamilton. And he said, sometimes the easiest thing to do is just to give up. 
And yeah. the best thing is not to do that. Yeah. It sounds like that's what you were doing. Yeah. And, and in a way, that's a perfect. I had mentioned that before. Like, in a way, I would tell kids that I had given up on myself because in my mind, I thought, I'm not good at school. <laughs> and so then I just didn't try. But then when I went back to college, I was really good. I would get straight A's and B's and graduated with honors. And it was great. Yeah. That's awesome. So mm-hmm. it helped you connect with the kids. Yeah. Well, much after, yeah. um, but my own kids, yeah. That's fantastic, because you do have two sons. You I do. You have a grandson. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's go way back now. Uh, your family is from Halostotitlan in Jalisco. Yes. Uh, your dad came here when he was only 17 as part of the Bracero program, yes. working seasonally, picking prunes and strawberries. Eventually, he got his permanent residency card brought his family here, and you, the youngest of seven, uh, were born a short while later. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and your family? Yeah, it it was wholesome. It was everything you could imagine, you know, mom and dad, siblings, a bunch of siblings. <laughs> we lived on the Leveroni Ranch. We had the privilege of being out in nature and running through creeks and, you know, chasing cows, which we probably shouldn't have. (laughs) (laughs) But it was really a wholesome life. You know, um, we were all together and it was not, it was a time where like, you didn't have electronics, you didn't really, you had TV, but you really didn't use it. It was about being in community. So aunts, uncles, fellow families that lived at the ranch would come. And so we would always gather together. And I, for for folks in the valley, if they remember the Laverne Ranch, there was always corn in the summer, and that was planted intentionally because then we would invite friends and family over summer to do tamales elote. It's a specific really? type of tamal. Yeah, very well known. Um, you have to use a specific type of corn, and we would have tamaleadas every weekend through the summer and it was a way to bring people together and so between the tamales and the posadas there was always gatherings at the house so it sounds like you were building community from an early early age you mentioned you grew up on the leveroni ranch working on the ranch doing all kinds of cleaning up after the cows and feeding them (laughs) and stuff what kind of stories do you remember from that time well, my mom started working at a skilled nursing facility on, on Broadway. I'm forgetting what the name was at the time. And so she started being out of the house a little bit. And so my dad would take me to work with him at the ranch until she would get off. So it was probably like two or three hours a day. And this is his nutritious snack for me. It was a bag of Brock's candy. <laughs> A jug of milk from home and then a bag of the, remember at Safeway, the white bags? Yeah. So it was like oranges and apples. That's what he would feed me <laughs> until my mom would get home. And so I would just follow my dad around. Um, he would work in kind of the back end of the dairy where they give cows their medication that they need. And I know it's called something, it's basically a high-powered hose that you Um, push your thumbs into Mm -hmm. and it shoots out the water so I would blow up the cow patties and make them go down the drain which is very fun (laughs) ranch activities (laughs) and then I'd help them guide the cows to their pens at the end of the day so it was good that sounds pretty amazing yeah good good experiences I had my own branch boots (laughs) yeah Yeah, the muck boots well you mentioned your dad I know that you Work, you care for, do you live with your mother? Uh, yeah. 
What kind of lessons have your parents taught you? They So my dad passed in 19, and what they taught me is family first. They always really relied on each other. My, my parents together, you know, started a restaurant. They um, built their first house together, their first sweat equity house, which is the house we live in now. They were able to build wealth and buy a few properties in town. And so they always have taught me how to work hard, to give back. So my parents would always charge very low rents as a way to help people kind of lift themselves mm-hmm. up. And so they've taught me family, work hard. Yeah, yeah. those are good lessons. Yeah. I grew up in a family where I spoke Portuguese and English at home. My mom's from Brazil, my dad's from the United States. I'm curious about you. You grew up in a bilingual life, I think. Well, you spoke Spanish at home, English. What, what was, how did that affect the way that you see the world? Yeah, well, my mom and dad would always speak Spanish at home. I was the youngest of the seven siblings, so my siblings would talk to me in English. And so I, in my rebellion, would talk to my parents in English, which is very rude, now I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was a way that like, I like trying to show like, I can learn English. Uh And so what I did was, when I had my kids, I spoke to them only in Spanish. Um, which also proved to be a challenge. <laughs> yeah. um, my youngest son, we I remember I took him to Tahoe and I was gonna take him to a, a ski lesson and the teacher was telling him something and I could hear my son, because there's a parent's overlook, I could hear my son saying, Quiero ir con Diego, which is his cousin, like the whole time. I'm like, and the lady's like, okay, we're going to have lunch in a little bit. And he's like, but quiero ir con Diego. <laughs> I was like, he does not know English. <laughs> Bless him. That was a bad approach. So with his younger brother, I incorporated both so it's more fluid. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing that approach now with my grandson, Mateo, um, so that he can understand understands the difference. But it's important to be able to speak the language, to read it, to understand it. Writing is a little bit of a challenge, like I said, because I primarily just spoke English to my siblings and my parents. And it wasn't until I was older that I understood the value in being bilingual, bicultural, and really embraced it. Yeah, I I totally hear you there. Yeah. It's tough to not be able to write and read in this language as well as you would like to, right? Yeah. But I think it offers so many unique perspectives and maybe prepared you for when you would get a call from a constituent from a perspective that you didn't know anything about to yeah. know that it exists and it's out there. Yeah, yeah. And it, take, it, and it takes some work that when you're hearing a conversation in Spanish, translate it in your mind and then being able to repeat it back in Spanish to someone. So, you know, I wish I would have done better growing up, but it was also a time where Sonoma Valley wasn't as diverse as it is now. You know, we were one of like seven larger Latino families, and so you really wanted to assimilate. And so lessons learned. Lessons learned. Well, I'm (laughs) glad you're continuing the tradition of incorporating both Spanish and English, of keeping those things alive. Yeah. you attended Cesarini, Altamira, Sonoma High. You're a true Sonoma native. Yeah. What do you think makes Sonoma so special? The sense of community. It's it's small town, but really it's about community and it's about who you know. I you know, I was 
on the plaza for 4th of July, and I ran into someone who thanked me for some work with the congressman. And I said, oh, you mentioned your brother went to school with one of my brothers. Is this the brother? And one of my brothers was with me. And he's like, no, but I went to school with you. And they, you know, just kind of said, oh, and they realized that three of our siblings all went to school together. And then shortly thereafter, my sister walked up to the conversation and she's like, oh, you're Miss, are you Mrs. So-and-so's kid? She taught me catechism. So it's a sense of community Mm -hmm. that everybody knows each other. If something happens in the community that's tragic or someone needs help, like everybody rallies. Totally. And so it's a good place to be. It is a good place to be. And I'm glad that you mentioned the 4th of July because a friend said that going to the farmer's market with you or anywhere in Sonoma or Santa Rosa is a blessing and a curse because <laughs> you're going to meet a lot of people, but it'll take you forever to get from point A to point B. Yes. Does that sound about right? <laughs> it does. She it does. said that to you, everyone is a friend or a potential friend. And they all, f- everybody who talks to you feels like they're your best friend. How did you develop that philosophy and ability? You know, I don't know. I think that I always try to find the good in people. I love being out and being in community and meeting new people and then connecting people. So you build relationships and friendships. And then when the time comes, you're like, oh, I have a friend that does this. Let me connect you to this. Mm -hmm. And I did a a version of that going back to the teen center is when one of the kids wanted to do something as a career, I'm like, oh, our neighbor down the street does this. Let's go talk to him. That's cool. And so I always find ways to kind of connect folks. The connections make a huge difference, even just to have that opportunity to see what it's like to be an accountant or a lawyer or a mechanic or whatever it is. Yeah. It's it's huge. Yeah. You mentioned this before, and you've also said in an interview that when you came here, the Enmosillos were one of seven Latino families, as you said. But now we make up 51% of the population. How has that shift in demographics changed the way you think about representation in the valley and community? Yeah, it's really driving by the high school on during lunch or when they get out and seeing the level uh, of diversity is amazing. Yeah. I also it also makes me sad because that level of diversity we don't see on boards, on commissions, on city council, at supervisors. And so if you if you make up such a large percentage of the population, we should be have a voice also on boards, on commissions. You know, representation matters. Well, then now's a good time to mention that you're running for super for supervisor. I am. Is this one of the reasons? Um, it is one of the reasons. Um, we know that representation matters. I would be the first Latina to be on the board. Ever? Ever. What? Uh-huh. That blows my mind. We had a Latino, and I would be the first Latina. And so representation is important. And and being able to serve the community in a different capacity, that was really my draw. And I am running to help people, but I'm also running to be that example for young men and women that look like me, that they too can do this. And so I hope I light a spark that if I do get elected, that they will also want to run for similar seats or join boards or commissions and just be representative of our community. Yeah, just kind of be a voice that can be... Yeah out there. Yeah. And I it, sometimes I forget what representation matters. And I had mentioned how we do the the inter- exit interview for, for our 
interns in the congressman's office. And one of the young gals, we talk about peaks and valleys. Mm-hmm. And I said, what was your peak? And some are like, oh, helping this person with this case. And this young woman just recently this, this year, she said, having a Latina in the office. And I just for, I, I forgot. And so... Um, it's easy to forget that you are a Latina representing a member of Congress. And for her to remind me, it just reminds me that these kids need someone that looks like them in different platforms. We're going to take another quick break, but we'll be right back with Rebecca Hermosillo. Hello, Sonoma. Welcome back. We're still talking with Rebecca Hermosillo. This might seem like a strange question, but how much of yourself, when you think about Rebecca, would you say is your identity as a Latina woman? Does that make sense? When you're thinking about who you are in the world, how much of who you are do you think makes that up? Because when we think about representation, it's it's easier for us to see the others, but it's harder for us to see ourselves. Yeah, I think it's hard for me to realize that I am a Latina because I was born here, because my networks, you know, how I reach out to people and how I talk to people, it's to understand their perspective. And not often do I have like, oh, they're Latino or oh, they're Asian American. Like, I just want to understand what their issues are and their priorities. And so... I can at times forget like what I represent to other, for others. Yeah, well, that's cool that you are gonna you, that you are doing that right now. Yeah, and yeah. you're hoping to do that more. Yeah. Did you have a conversation with yourself or with your family or anybody that was like, "Can I do this?" Or how did you decide? I think it's a big step to yeah. just decide. Yeah. So folks had a- approached me in the past, and it was never the right time either. The office was in a good place. I was going to school. My dad was not doing doing well. And so it was never the right time. And so when Supervisor Gorin asked uh, for me to consider running, I told her that I would need to talk to my family and really like digest it and talk to the congressman and I'd get back to her. And so I talked to my family because I know that helping people is what I love. Mm -hmm. And, And I know that I could do the job. But I wanted to get their blessing because the dynamics at home are going to be different. And it's imp- my family's important. And Absolutely. so making sure that everyone was on board with this step moving forward. And obviously, I admire and trust the congressman. He's been an amazing mentor. And then so he was my next conversation. Um, and he was fully supportive. So I felt like it was the right time to move forward. Well, I really wish you the best of luck. I should say also that besides your role in the congressman's office, you are being that person on a lot of different boards and taking an interest. You are on or have been on the Speedway Children's Charities Board, the Goodwill Industries Redwire Empire Board, Sonoma Valley Catalyst Fund Steering Committee, the Pepperwood Preserve, Sonoma County Sheriff's Latino Advisory Council. That's a lot of stuff to do. How have these different perspectives shaped your view on the Valley? Well, a lot of them are, are... about giving back to others or being of service or how can we serve better. Mm-hmm. And so it's always been that kind of philosophy. And helping kids, <laughs> as you can see with some of the boards, is kind of my my highlight, I, yeah. I love. And so I joined the sheriffs when I was at the teen center because I wanted to make sure that we were implementing policies and procedures that wouldn't unjustly harm or impact the kids we serve. And so it was important that I had a voice for them 
on the Sheriff's Latino Advisory Council. Speedway Children's Charity, the same, making sure that the monies raised are going to the nonprofits that are doing the most impactful work. Pepperwood Preserve Youth Advisory Council, how do we get kids out in nature? How do we get more BIPOC kids out in nature? So it's always uh, the vein of helping young our youth. Yeah, and just getting involved. I think there's a misconception sometimes that getting involved is, what's the point? What can I do? And I just think about, for example, I went to one meeting, Language Advisory Council for the elections in Sonoma County. And in that meeting, there were seven people, seven volunteers, and we decided then if we would include other languages in the ballots. Yeah. And if it hadn't been for us with this particular you know, just volunteers, yes. they would have had to decide by themselves and they wouldn't have had input from other people. Yeah. Are there any other misconceptions that you think about the role of the general public and getting involved and what they can make happen? Yeah. You know, it's, we all come with networks of support. And so that's why when I meet people, I am looking for new friendships. <laughs> and when I was on the Catalyst Board, it was very early on in um, the COVID times. We know that it was a challenge getting culturally appropriate foods to people in the valley. I went to the food bank a few times to get some boxes for people that were COVID positive. And so one of the Food for All volunteers would put the food, um, culturally appropriate food, on her credit card every month. And I think it was to the tune of about $15,000 a month. And I'm like, that is not sustainable. Let me make a call because when I ran the teen center, my cousins who own La Favorita Market next door would let me run a tab. And so I asked them if they would let them run a tab because Food for All has the money, but it's held in another nonprofit's like bank and they had to wait for them to cut checks and then pay off the credit card. So it took a while. And so my cousins at La Favorita let Food for All have a, a running tab so that she would no longer have to pay that expense. And so it's about those connections and those friendships to make things go smoother. So Food mm-hmm. for All is doing amazing work, but how can we help them not have it be a hardship? And so it's my understanding that they created a form that you then sent to the market and then, you know, however many families had, however many people make up that household, how many were COVID positive, so they'd get like chicken, rice, so that they could make a caldo de pollo, and then have bleach wipes and whatever else was needed. And then they'd pick up the boxes in the afternoon and deliver it to the household that was positive so that they could stay home and focus on getting better. So it's about connecting people that can be helpful. That's huge. And I should say there's a connection to that story in your own life, which is that your family owned the first Latino market, Mi Tienda, on Highway 12. Yeah. And your dad uh, allowed people to buy stuff on credit as a way of giving back as well. Yeah. Uh, that would you say that that's kind of where you learned that giving back was important too? Yeah, it, they all the time growing up at the ranch, there was people that would come to the U.S. that needed help, and so they would stay in one of the spare rooms or in the barn, or or I know someone that can you know put you up for a few months while you get established. So that was always kind of the trajectory. Um, in the Hermosillo household to help yeah. others. Um, they did it with letting people run tabs at the restaurant. And yeah. That's pretty special. Yeah. Well, I'm sure many people listening are inspired and will be wondering, how can I get more involved in the community? I want to highlight a quote of yours where you said, even if you have nothing, you can still give time or energy or comfort that makes everyone feel great. Yeah. 
Is there anything else you'd like to share with someone eager to get more involved in the Sonoma yeah. community? Yeah. Find what you're passionate about. If it's the garden, there's the Ecology Center. If it's youth, there's so many youth-serving organizations. If it's mental health, find what you are passionate about and find ways to give back. Mm -hmm. It could be volunteering a few hours at the hospital. It could be joining a board. It could be driving someone that is on a board. You know, it just find a way for you to get your foot in the door and do what you want to do to be helpful. And the benefits that you get back are much more than what you give. Excellent. Well, I can't think of a better way to conclude. <laughs> thank you so much for all you do, thank Rebecca. You. And thank you for being on the program. Thanks for your time. Great to be here. Thank you again so much to Rebecca for coming on the program. It was an absolute pleasure to hear so much more about her life, story, and career path throughout these years. I'm always inspired when I hear of a local Sonoman out there representing us on a national level. Of course, thank you to all of you listeners for tuning in. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. And though we've reached the end of this episode, remember, it's not goodbye, it's Hello Sonoma.